I'm fascinated by what it means to be human, um, from how we've evolved um, uh, to be these crazy flawed uh, physical beings that we see before us, to how these uh, these physical beings have been able to um, adapt and change and um, migrate to nearly every square inch of the earth and not just survive in each of those different places, but to thrive in those different places. So a key feature of that is not just the evolution of human physical diversity, but the evolution of human cultural diversity and how we've marshaled our symbols, our structures, our practices, our relationships, our stories, our rituals, our songs, the objects, and our connection to the environment to be able to make sense of the complexity of our experience, to be able to find mechanisms to deal with the challenges that the that, that, that our, our world puts up for us. Alrighty, and we're live here with Dr. Monty. How you doing, Dr. Monty? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. I've been excited for this conversation for well since we spoke. Um, it's uh, I've never spoke to an anthropologist before <laughs> in this context, so I'd, I'd love to yeah have this chat and understand a bit about your story and how did you get to where you are now and and what's the journey been to get there. That's such a big question, Luke. Um, I know. You know, I, I couldn't help, but uh, uh, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, not a lot of people have spoken to anthropologists. And one of the, the reasons why I do what I do, one of the reasons why I've left academia to move into more public spaces is to, is to help people understand the value of anthropology and to kind of make anthropology a household name. And then the other thing I thought about, Luke, was you said, I've never spoken to an anthropologist in this context. And of course, my first question is, well, what other context have you been thinking about anthropologists in? I'm really excited to know more. <laughs> well, I, I have a, a friend who's studying anthropology um, and I think she's finished now. So I have spoken to her in the context of a social conversation, but I, I knew I'd spoken to an anthropologist. And as you asked that question for me, I'm thinking to myself, well, when have I spoken to anthropologists? And that, that was the time there. So... It's a funny one, you know, I think um, uh, early on in my career as, a, as an anthropologist, one of the things that attracted me most was the idea that um, actually we're all lay anthropologists. We're all kind of fascinated with what it means to be human, to understand who we are, why we're here, how we got here, um, you know, how we deal with change, how we make sense of the world, how we find meaning through the various experiences that we've had and how we move forward together towards something that, you know, potentially... Um, that we can benefit from. And so this is why I love it because it, for me, anthropology is not something that is held solely in the possession of a, of a, a specialized group, although I did do a PhD to get here, right? But it's, it's something that we can all have ownership over because we're all humans. We're all kind of fascinated by, by, by our humanity and what it means to be human. And, and so, you know, like um, speaking to an undergraduate anthropologist or speaking with a, uh, um, you know, a professional anthropologist or speaking to someone who just wants to, to, who gives a crap about what it means to be human. I think these are the different contexts through which we can engage in anthropology. And, and, and that to me is really powerful because it means that it can be applied in a whole heap of different spaces, whether that be in, in the interpersonal space between two individuals, like we had when we had our initial, initial phone call, right? We were just jamming around what it means to be human <laughs> or what it means to, um, to understand our humanity and leverage the, 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 the power of our humanity in, in developing inclusive, intentional, collaborative, creative cultures, whether that be in a school, a community, an organization, or even uh, at a larger scale. So when you ask me about my journey, um, uh, it's a it's a big hard one to answer, and I, and I suppose I'd love to to put a bit more focus around that and and think about how I can talk about my journey in relation to um, to what you want to talk about today as well. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, I guess what I want to scale it back to is for those listening, can you give us a definition of anthropology because we have it in our mind what we think it is, but let's let's talk about definition first. Let's start there. It's a good place to start, my friend. I think, um, you know, very simply, anthropology is a study of humans. And as I said, I'm fascinated by what it means to be human, um, from how we've evolved um, uh, to be these crazy flawed uh, physical beings that we see before us, to how these uh, these physical beings have been able to um, adapt and change and um, migrate to nearly every square inch of the earth and not just survive in each of those different places, but to thrive in those different places. 
So a key feature of that is not just the evolution of human physical diversity, but the evolution of human cultural diversity and how we've marshaled our symbols, our structures, our practices, our relationships, our stories, our rituals, our songs, the objects, and our connection to the environment to be able to make sense of the complexity of our experience, to be able to find mechanisms to deal with the challenges that the that, that, that our, our world puts up for us. Um, to be able to um, uh, not only make sense of it, but to communicate that with other people within our communities, but also communicate that with people outside of our communities. Um, and to do so uh, in a way that enables us to not only like um, uh, to, to not only deal with those changes in real time, but also to be able to um, to change the way that we make sense of the world, to change the way that we deal with challenges, um, because the only thing that is inevitable is change, and our success as a species is not our ability to to be kind of um, uh, uh, uniquely adapted to one environment or one set of challenges. Our superpower is the fact that we are not uniquely adapted and that we are variable, that we can change, that we can do things in one way. And then um, as the world changes, let go of that um, uh, with very varying levels of difficulty and ease, um, but embrace new ways of doing things. And so our ability to do things differently, our ability to be different, our ability to embrace change, um, our ab ability to let go and forget, these are all inherently human things. And our ability to connect with people, with objects, with places, with stories um, in order to do that, um, the, the, our ability to marshal our culture to be able to do that, that's, that's the stuff that we study as anthropologists. Wow. And to go one step further, how would anthropology be different to psychology? <laughs> You've triggered me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, it can be different. It, there are also some crossovers, right? Like I think psychology, like many of the social sciences and the humanities, they're trying to understand what it, uh, something about what it means to be human. I think that the key difference is in methodology and the assumptions that we make around what we can and can't do. So, you know, I, I think I think definitely um, psychology is built upon a very particular sort of epistemology or a structure of knowledge. It's built upon a very particular philosophy that is that has a strong history and culture that underpins it. Um, it locates, you know, human. Uh, um, uh, like our humanity and our personality within our minds. I mean, this is, these are very limited descriptions of psychology. I know that, that psychology has been pushed further and it, it isn't just a, a purely schematic thing that just deals with a cognitive or psychological uh, uh, framework. Um, uh, but if we're looking at the differences, um, certainly psychology is something that is kind of bound in the mind. Um, uh, and, uh, whilst it may look at social and cultural determinants, certainly Bronfen Brenner has some wonderful models in there as well. Um, uh, I think it isn't, it is limited to, a, to limited to a, a kind of a constrained, um, idea of what it means to be human. And I think anthropologists take on a much more sort of holistic approach. And, and, and we also take on approach, which challenges Western sort of analytical academic, psychological psychoanalytic models explicitly it says that they are just one mechanism through which to understand our humanity our subjectivity our relationships our well-being um, but there are many many others that we can draw from that actually exist outside of that framework and 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 within the, the psychological framework that that has like a scientific um, a criteria it, it can define sort of pathologies of being, which we as anthropologists might just look at just different ways of being. So we, we may not apply that normative construction of what it means to be human upon um, complex and diverse ways of being human and acknowledge that if you don't fit within a statistical or a societal norm, that doesn't mean there's something necessarily wrong with you. It just means that, that you have a different way of engaging in the world. And, and when we look across cultures and across time, different cultures and different historical periods have employed those differences of uh, those human differences in different ways. Mm -hmm. Some in ways that have marginalized and excluded people and some which have actually drawn their differences into, to contribute to the way that we, we function as a society. So long winded way of saying things. I mean, but having said that, like I play with psychology, I shouldn't say I play with it, but I utilize psychological <laughs> frameworks and theories all the time in the work that mm -hmm. I do around mental health, around, um, uh, around, uh, marginalization, um, around diversity, equity, inclusion, 
Um, and it's just another wonderful framework that we can use. I just don't hold them as being the only framework. I don't hold them as being rigid or, or, or universal. I think that's a big difference there. We don't apply, we don't try to apply universals based upon sort of um, specific scientific um, methods that can often, they often tell us more about the cohort that was being studied specifically. You can't then apply that across, uh, you can't generalize that, but also they tell us about the norms of a society as opposed to the the lived experience of the people um, that we're really trying to understand. Would it be safe to say that psychology is more from individual basis than outwards and where anthropology is more looking at the cultures and their natural habitats, the natural environments and looking from that way? Yeah, look, again, I think that I think that psychology is so much more than that. Hmm. I think psychology, I mean, I, I, you could say that a, a sort of a more traditional understanding of psychology might be that, but, but there's, you know, what there are so many different schools of psychology that help us to Social challenge. Social psychology. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally, right? So, so many different ways of, of unpacking, um, you know, psychology, and it does, and even the methodology has moved on. Um, uh, and anthropology again, it's not a it's not a, a singular school of thought. Um, uh, what I what I will say is that that in understanding what it means to be human, the the thing that is quintessentially anthropological is a is a humility, a humility to understand that that I as an anthropologist don't know everything, but that I have the the capacity to inquire into the different ways of 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 knowing and being and seeing and living in the world. It's that sort of methodological or, or, or um, perspective shift of anthropology that I think differentiates us because it opens us up like um, to understanding what it means to be human through spir- the spirituality of indi- Indigenous communities or management consultants in uh, in like a in a in a, um, a corporate setting. You know, these are just different frameworks that people are using to make sense of, to understand, to communicate the human condition, um, and none of them. Are set in stone, and that's what's beautiful about anthropology is that is that is that it affords us a flexibility and a fluidity to be able to step into those different worlds um, and and try to understand them to a point that we can communicate that with people that haven't been there, acknowledging that those worlds are always changing, um, and that that our ability to understand those worlds situates us within an ongoing conversation. I love that. That's beautiful. So I've been reading uh, a lot, like a, a lot, every single day, at least two or three hours um, into World War One and World War Two, mm. um, and I'm reading uh, this 40-hour-long audio book on Adolf Hitler, and also I'm reading um, this uh, larger World War Two book, and I'm kind of linking the two up and watching the journey and 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 the people around that, and they really bring to light uh, the amount of uh, how would you say. All the things that happened, you know, because you you see like the numbers, you see the figures, you see the you know from from where we are now in twenty twenty three, but you see individual accounts of people going through their experiences in in that in that uh, in that part of the of, of of our history, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on on what you think happened culturally in that era, um, and and what we can learn from that. Because I think history repeats itself, right? I don't mean it is in any way right now. But I think it's important to look back and to really understand that. I'd love to hear your point of view on that if you'd like to share. You don't shy away from the big questions, hey? <laughs> how do you don't. explain the uh, social phenomena of the Holocaust and how can a community free? <laughs> I nearly swore I'll hold it back. Hey, uh, that's a big question. And I think that um, there um, – where would I start? Um I mean, people do. So here's the thing, right? Um, there is so much information out in the world. This is where this is where I love anthropology because it's a mechanism through which we can embrace the complexity of human experience and human subjectivity. And I think the difference between anthropology and say psychology is our our reflective ethical process of constantly acknowledging our position within the research. So as you know, a, 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 a sort of a more um, traditional psychological researcher will kind of go, well, I'm objective and I'm I'm studying people in an objective sense, whereas an anthropologist is like, objectivity, I'm not sure how, how real that is. And in fact, subjectivity is not a dirty word. If we acknowledge it and embrace it and and acknowledge the the limits and the and the and the strengths and weaknesses of it, then we actually have some good material to work with. Um, and, and the reason why that's important is that, that that we can subjectively acknowledge the complexity of human experience and still go, well, that's not the end. We can continue to uh, to unpack this and have a conversation about it. Um, 
And so it lends itself to being able to understand dynamic, complex phenomena. And something like the uh, the Holocaust was a, a, a historical moment that emerged over time through dynamic and complex uh, uh, phenomena that came from multiple different directions, economic, political, social, um, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, uh, and um, I think... You know, one of the big things about about what it means to be human is that humans are actually quite limited in what we can and can't do. You know, the human working memory is really, um, really quite small. You know, we can only hold sort of four things to five things in our brains uh, for about 20 seconds unless we do something to it, right? So we have to do a range of things. We discuss its relevance. We assess its relevance. We create stories around it. We have structures, repetition. We communicate and practice with it. We, it, we cognitively offer flowed the things that we have learned and experienced into into artifacts of material culture into stories into into memories into uh, objects in the world um and so biases say again we have biases like availability heuristic well this is the point is that because there's so much information coming at us the human brain or the human can only really um process four percent of available information before making a decision and so we're constantly sifting through the vast amount of information available so that we don't kind of our heads don't explode from all the material that the data that's coming at us now the beautiful thing about this is that humans because we can only really take in a certain amount of information before we make decisions, it means that we have to fill the gaps. And we fill those gaps with sort of mental heuristics or logical fallacies like, you know, the ones that you're talking about, biases, um, you know, um, et cetera, uh, cognitive biases, uh, again, uh, logical shortcuts, mental shortcuts um, to make it a bit easier. And that kind of gives us the ability to think, if, well, we, we think we're thinking efficiently, but what we're doing is we're actually thinking quite creatively. Now, that creativity is is essential for our humanity. It enables us to solve problems creatively. It enables us to, to creatively find meaning out of things that maybe don't have meaning um, or, or create meaning out of things that don't have meaning. And, and, you know, it's the source of creative thinking. It's the source of a lot of the stuff, the symbols and structures and practices I was talking about. But it's also the source of lazy thinking. It's also the source of of of, um, of conspiracy theories, of, of of stereotypes, of biases, of prejudices, um, uh, and and so you know it's like um, you know there's there's costs and benefits to it. And during moments of real kind of disruption to a, st- a stable or, or a status quo that has given us stability, especially with disruptions to a status quo that maybe we've been benefiting from, right? Or um, then we we can't, we seek to find stability through things like rituals or cultural norms, whether they're mythology. True, say again, mythology. Yeah, mythology. Um, again, rituals, um, structures of power, um, uh, structures of inequity, um, structures that create meaning. So you know, uh, and and part of that can also be a mythology around good and bad, right and wrong, evil, and and um, uh, and the other. And and you know, this is this played out with us as a result of like the pandemic and as a result of global financial crisis. We saw this playing out quite explicitly um, uh, uh, during the pandemic with with the conspiracy theories that were that were emerging at the time. And and you know, and and in order to you know, and people were holding on to this idea of being good and being intelligent. Like generally, generally, people don't think that they're stupid and bad, right? Most Never. people are are are, are good natured and and try to work with the available information and they like they also have this internal belief that they're they're good people and they're intelligent people and so you know when people were leveling these accusations to conspiracy theorists and and anti-vaxxers etc and saying well you're stupid or you're bad well then they were like well no that doesn't fit with my sense of who i am and it created a cognitive dissonance around which they were had to level up the intelligence and the goodness, you know, we saw this happening saying, well, I'm actually more intelligent. You haven't done your research. There's actually more research out there that you're not, you don't have available to you. And if you were actually smart, you'd see that there's more information that you don't have access to. That's mm. one way of reconciling the cognitive, cognitive dissonance of being labeled stupid um, when they had the self-belief that they were actually smart. The other way was, was, was to say that you can't see what I see, right? Follow the breadcrumbs. Or, or, or saying things like, you know, the, the good that you think you're doing, you think you're doing good to be able to cr- construct this kind of um, immunity, uh, uh, this, this process of immunity for the, for the community. But in actual fact, there's a higher good that I'm fighting for. 
the higher good that I'm fighting for is bigger than your good, but you just can't see it right now. And that good is, you know, the the, the infringement on our, our human rights, the infringements on our freedoms, but also this kind of deeper, uh, um, a kind of this deeper battle that's playing out between good and evil, of which they feel like they are a part. You know, the 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 baby eating carbal of of um, I can't even remember what the name of all those people were. The the oh, it's it's I can't believe how quickly that has left my consciousness. But um um oh, what was that group um where Deep one state. Goes, say again Deep State Deep State and there was another one uh, where one goes we all go um uh, oh. Uh, it'll come to me if it's, if it's live and someone's watching. Please tell us I've forgotten. Um, as I say, the human brain is limited. But we saw this playing out, right, around which narratives and myths were starting to be formed around good and bad. Um, that we that that as a person who is like a, a, a pro-vaxxer, I was I was constructing these narratives around the anti-vax other narratives that now don't serve me because the humanity of them was like, well, it actually doesn't matter now in the post-COVID world, right? But I was constructing these narratives of rightness and wrongness, which was actually reinforcing their position. And they were constructing narratives about our rightness and wrongness and the and the vast evil in the world of which they played a part, which um, which served their position. And for some of those people, they, they are post-COVID, they were able to go, well, hang on, this doesn't serve me anymore. I'm, I'm actually grossly disconnected from the people around me and the stuff that really matters. And for some, they actually doubled down upon it. Um, Amanda Montel wrote a wonderful book called Cultish, which speaks about the, the, the actual mechanisms, the use of language, the ways in which people are excluded from their groups, the ways in which the, the, the insider and outsider kind of um, uh, uh, tests are so rigid that, and, and the way in which it affects us uh, and the level of our sense of self and our sense of belonging, that we can actually grossly distort reality to a point where people can do some really awful stuff. Now, the other thing about the Holocaust was apart from these, these processes occurring within a, in a um, you know, um, uh, an economic and a political uh, uh, situation, which was, which was definitely tied to race and inequality and class, et cetera, you actually had the establishment of, of state-sanctioned processes through which um, uh, uh, Jewish people or people who were the victims of the Holocaust were dehumanised. There's an amazing PhD thesis that came out of the University of Wollongong that talks explicitly about how, you know, the economic crisis, <clears throat> and and I'm 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 not I haven't read the PhD, but I've read an, a, a sort of assessments of it. But the economic crisis and the Holocaust were like the Holocaust was turned into an issue of numbers and accounting. That when you look at, I think it was the refugee tax, or I can't remember the specifics. I wish uh, I wish I did, but um. But the idea was that the existence of Jewish people in the in in Germany, there was a dollar amount placed upon it to the point where it was, their humanity was actually taken away, and it was turned into a budgetary thing, whereby our ability to overcome the the economic effects of the of the Great Depression could be overcome by dealing with this economic issue, which translated to the Holocaust and the um and um. Uh, and and the the awful atrocities that, that were enacted upon the Jewish population and other populations as well. So so it's a combination of of like extreme social economic political pressures combined with a, 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 um, a specific technologies or mechanisms through which we can construct these worldviews of difference, um, uh, uh, specific technologies of the state. But also combined with the fact that people, if people were not on board, there was there was explicit forms of punishment that stopped them from doing it. So then their whole worldview had to be reconfigured uh, to say, well, I'm doing this thing, but I'm still a good person, right? So so all those processes started to to take place, and and of course the natural attrition of explicitly killing people who resisted, right? Um, and we also know that humans can get caught up in this collective effervescence of it, um, which can which can actually can can um, uh, can 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 be derailed and be completely beyond control, and that's what's happened. Apart from the fact that you know this racism, the racism and the inequality was not just supported by the German population; it was also supported by the Americans and factions within Europe, um, the Italians, uh, in Argentina, in Australia, even. So, like again, massive, massive question, a very difficult to answer in a short period of time, except to say, humans do this. Humans have yeah. done this. Humans will continue to do this. And so when we and what this gives us is an opportunity to uncover or unpack or, or inquire into, into the human condition. 
And when I look at these 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 phenomena, these historical phenomena that repeat themselves, I, I I come back to these sort of very simple questions that people ask about what it means to be human. Are we good or are we bad? And I'm like, well, we're both and neither at the same time. We have the capacity for some amazing things and some awful things. And we have these, these mechanisms, these cultural mechanisms, mechanisms through which we can enact power overtly and covertly to construct subjectivities within our communities to do amazing things and to do awful things. And by understanding that, and I understand, I try to understand that through an anthropological lens, we can intervene when, when we are doing things badly or doing things that I think badly is probably not the right word, but doing things that cause harm. Mm. Um, and doing, and we can support and nurture aspects of our culture to be more inclusive and supportive, and um, and safe and collaborative, um, so that we can do less harm as a society. So one of my my pet peeves is, uh, and not that people say this very often, but they will say something along the lines of that person's bad or what they did was bad. It's like I don't think there's such thing as pure evil or pure innocence. I think there's there's always a collective of the two, and I think that you know we have we have limited time on this earth, right? You can't research the history of every single person that existed, but when you when you look at someone's past, you look at where they were born into something, what was going on in that era, what influenced them, what country were they born in, you know, what what political system were they born underneath, and you start to see trends, right? So I want to share with you a a, a model of thinking that I have on the way that I assess certain things, and I want you to tell me a where I, where I might be wrong, and b how I could see it from what technologies or what ways I could see it better from an, an anthropological point of view, right? So I read a book called um, The Social Animal by Elliot Aronson, who's a social psychologist. And in this book, he says that innately in humans, we have an us versus them mentality and it's kept us alive, it's kept us, uh, it's, it's in our DNA basically, right? And I've had conversations with people I mean, who follow. I, 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 that's the first thing I challenge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first thing I challenge is, you know, where did quickly? I'm just did, using oh, my language. Like I'm, I, oh, I'm yeah, not cool. quite, yeah, I'm using using my language. I would have to go into the book and see exactly what he said, quote for quote. Yeah, but yeah. that was that was my takeaway, right? Um, but I'd love to hear what your your thoughts on anyway. <laughs> but um, long story short, so there's us versus them in a tribal sense, right? Mm. And I've spoken a lot of you know Buddhist. Uh, people who are into Buddhism and Taoism and those kind of things, and they mm. say that the goal of the human is to transcend that, almost like to tr transcend our biology in a way, mm. and to like there's an evolution. We ought to move past this humanistic way of being, and that if we keep, you know, become more present, become more aligned, we move beyond our human proclivities. So my belief is that the best kind of human, or the best way that we should that come forth in the world is to understand our biology and by understanding that we have a proclivity towards us versus them. And rather than pushing it to the side and saying, I'm going to aim towards an enlightenment state and be this like perfect monk in a way, I'm going to acknowledge that we are flawed in so many ways. And that's one of the things that we can fall into. And you see that playing out in America with the Republican versus Democrat. You see it playing out with anti and pro-vax. You see it playing out in many arenas. So I guess the question is, is that model of thinking that I have, is that correct? And if not, what would you use instead? Well, I mean, again, as an anthropologist, uh, my first inclination is to, to, to ask us to get beyond the idea of a, um, a worldview as being right or wrong. And you started off with that anyway. So it's like there's a logical inconsistency between saying, I don't believe there's a rightness or wrongness, but am I right? So I'd like as a person, I'd be inquiring into that. But in, as an anthropologist, I'm like, well, um, I'm really interested in that worldview for you. And I'm really interested in how that worldview serves you. Um, and I'd love to learn more. And that's that's from an anthropological perspective. That's the kind of thing that keeps me centered because it's also it also helps me recognize that my worldview is not the only way of seeing things and the only right way of doing things. And it opens me up to thinking about, well, it's another person's worldview and how can we benefit from that and draw that into the conversation. Um, Having said that, I think that that that, uh, that you know, look, and and you know, I might draw from a number of influences. So, you know, um, from a Western philosophical perspective, if you look at it, say, from say a post-modern, post-structural, um, you know, th those theorists might explicitly challenge the humanistic myth of the modernists or or the Enlightenment period. Um, uh, again, a period which informed that psychological perspective that I was talking about earlier. 
and the dark, the Cartesian myth of the mind versus the body and the you know this idea of being able to establish some objective universal truths. And, and so Western philosophy has got some mechanisms to challenge that. I mean, and, and if we were to relate that explicitly to the question about the Holocaust, I like to think about that in, in relation to the existentialist. I'm, I'm like, I'm like down with the the French existentialists, post-war French existentialists. Um, I like to combine them with the the German phenomenologists. And 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 um, just to explain that, what I mean is that um, after the war, right, like a really incredibly challenging period of human history, where people were asking those big questions of like, well, what's the point of existence? We've had Hiroshima, we've had the Holocaust, we've had World War II, we've had the Great Depression. Like, what's the freaking point? How can there be a god um, and, and to allow so much suffering, right? Like, so what is what is the point of existence? Why are we here? And they they spent and they extended on a range of other existentialist thinkers, but post post war French existentialists, I kind of dig. Um, Sartre, Nietzsche, uh, uh, de Beauvier, um, and uh, like they would, they they were like, well, what's the point of life? Well, maybe there isn't one. Maybe like maybe there isn't a god. You know, this is the the quote: "God is dead." And, and certainly from them, Sartre engaged in that that uh, transcendental existentialism, right? So similar to what you're talking about, that part of it is transcending ourselves in order to understand being uh, um, and 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 what our existence is. And and I think. In that conversation, they were like, well, there is no God. There is no meaning. There is no universal truth to life. And for some people, that was really, really challenging. The nihilists were like, well, that's it. There's nothing. I'm out. Um, but for the existentialists, there was hope because it was like, well, if there is no universal truth as defined by dogma or some divine truth de- 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 like that, that we can get through orthodoxy or religion or et cetera, then, then the meaning of our existence and the nature of our existence can mean whatever we want it to mean, whatever we choose it to mean. And for them, that was incredibly empowering. There was an aspect of um, uh, of transcendence that came from that because they're like, well, the meaning doesn't matter, but the ability and the opportunity to find or rather create meaning out of our conversations like we're doing now, well, that's inherently meaningful. So that the, 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 the life is not there is not some essential truth to life, but the act of finding truth is a meaningful activity that we can engage in that is kind of awesome, right? And that's the existentialist. And I like to combine that with the phenomenologists who say, well, you know, like let's find meaning through life, not just through intellectual pursuits, but through the lived experience, things that are embedded in our body, like our movement through space, the memories we create in particular locations, the way that I interact with the artifacts of material culture and the people in my world and in the environment. And so bringing those two things together, that existential phenomenology, I think, has served me very well. And I think it's a nice kind of connection. And one of the criticisms or analyses of, of that method or that perspective is that it's a bit too esoteric and a bit too aligned with, say, um, you know, Eastern perspectives. I'm okay with that. Um, uh, but, but you know, um, when it comes down to, like, these the, this idea of, of finding truth in our bodies, I'm like, well... Um, I, 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 I re- it resonates with me, but it resonates with me differently. It's not a biological scientific process, of which that may be one. I do look into what our bodies can do. I do look into our bodies specifically, but I think it's one aspect of the data uh, source that I use in conjunction with a range of other data sources because I don't believe that the that the the goodness or the badness or the the kind of the rightness or the wrongness of what it means to be human is decoded into our DNA or with the current science can actually be elicited from our DNA. We actually don't know enough about DNA to be able to, to, to posit those, those uh, conclusions. Um, when it comes to, to the, these boundaries of inclusion and exclusion, I think, I think, you know, people do want to belong to groups. I think that there is, I don't know that we have enough evidence to suggest that that's a natural condition. Or let me be clear that the way it's manifested in contemporary society is a natural condition. Because we can't separate those, the way in which we construct identity and belonging and exclusion in groups, we can't separate them from the political, philosophical, ideological, social structures that have emerged over time. What I do know is that humans have the capacity to be incredibly competitive and incredibly collaborative and inclusive. And when I think about the great things that humans have done, like humans, when I say great things, I I probably have more of a positive idealistic bend upon it because, you know, fuck, oh, sorry, the, the, um, uh, it's okay. okay, Cool. Thank you. 
I don't have to filter so much. I'll try not to do it too much. Um, you can do as much as you want. <laughs> but, you know, like, um, and I want to be very careful, and this cannot be taken out of context, but the Holocaust was was a, I won't say great thing, but that was an like an immense thing that humans did, and it did so much bad, right? Um, and that was built upon that exclusion and that inclusion concept of belonging, which structured a dehumanized other as someone that they could eradicate and exterminate systematically and without impunity and without any humanity while simultaneously being a, 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 a sort of appealing to something that makes us a, a, a kind of ideal humans or the Aryanic human, right? And yet humans have also been able to do the most amazing things like the, the great um, uh, migrations, the great constructions, the great, uh, you know, the great stories, uh, um, you know, where people have had to come together and, and they've had to come together uh, to, to achieve these amazing things, but they've also had to come together around an ideology that excludes them from others. So again, there's this like cyclic process which sort of, which which for me makes the idea of in and out groups as a defining feature of our humanity incredibly limited. Um, uh, and so I like to look at how the, the, our ability to compete and our ability to collaborate is in a constant dance. And so what is that dance and what are the dynamics, the social, political, economic, cultural, personal, um, environmental dynamics that shape, I suppose, the way in which that dance is played out, the direction of that dance around the room, who's leading the dance at various points, and who has the opportunity to intervene and take that dance in different directions. It's a good I answer. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> no, it did. It did. I'm understanding exactly what you're saying. It's. I mean, the first thing is it's complex. There's so many factors involved. And I don't like um, just dropping it as like the throwaway line. What does it mean to be human? Oh, it's complex. There's actually <laughs> heaps of good stuff out there that we can refer to. And I think this is the point, is that when we try to reduce it like a complex phenomena into simple things, the first thing we have to ask is what are we leaving off? Who does this analysis serve? Who does it disadvantages? Who does it advantage? What opportunities are there to challenge this analysis? And what good does it do us? What harm does it do us? So, so I think what I'm trying to say is that is I'm, you know, there, there are so many different resources we can use to unpack it. Um, and and I think that in trying to understand it, we owe ourselves, we do ourselves a disservice by not um, reaching out to those different resources and different explanations in order to understand it. I understand. I got you. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I think that in my question, so firstly, I want to clarify, I used the wrong word, DNA. I was using it in an <laughs> informal setting of like DNA in the sense of uh, it's in our blood. It's like who we are kind of thing, not literal DNA. Um, but no, I hear what you're saying. And I, th I think it really is complex. Um, not to make the questions any easier, but have you heard of Andrew Tate before? <laughs> I get asked about Andrew Tate all the time. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to hear your opinion. What, what made him, what has made him so popular? So many things, mate, like, uh, um, uh, social media, um, challenges to uh, a crisis of masculinity, um, uh, like a whole range of, and I need to contextualize, right? Like, so I think it's important for people, uh, to understand some of the stuff that I do. Um, so as an anthropologist, you know, um, I, uh, stepped away from academia in order to share, cause I wasn't satisfied with my academic career. It wasn't as meaningful as I had thought it would be. Um, and I didn't, I, I wasn't succeeding in it in the way that I wanted to. And so I uh, left academia. I wanted to uh, bring the privilege of my knowledge out into a range of different spaces. Um, having worked a lot with an Indigenous community in South India who were slaves until quite recently, I looked a lot at inequality. I looked at inequality and structural violence, structural inequality, and, and how people were able to maintain a sense of themselves and a sense of identity and a sense of purpose in the context of a world that was really quite hard and harsh. Um, and and uh, I've got a background in youth work, in education. Um, uh, and so, you know, I combined my understanding of what it meant to be human from an anthropological perspective with my background in youth work and, and education and initially started to work in schools and communities, working with, you know, running emotional intelligence, um, resilience, team building programs for young people in the primary and the secondary schools. And that extended into developing, you know, um, uh, like parental engagement programs with mostly dads and kids because there was a real need for that. 
Um, I, I started running rites of passage camps for young teen boys and their dads to help them navigate the challenges of what it meant to be a man in the contemporary world. And that was built on the back of, you know, I was a brown skinned man in a in a um, an all boys privileged school. I had a really hard relationship with my dad. It was quite abusive. And I suffered from what I believed to be the, the impact of toxic masculinity. And it actually, um, like it, it shaped some of my um, perspectives and choices. And I did things I wasn't proud of that didn't, re- like I was wearing a mask of masculinity that didn't reflect the complexity of who I was as a person underneath. So I was dealing with what it meant to be a man, I dealing with what it meant to be a, a brown-skinned Australian at a time that was quite racist. Um, and so these things informed some of the programs that I did. Um, um, they have then uh, extended, and then we did a lot of work with young adults, and then we taught teachers how to do these things. And over time, that extended out into the corporate space, where we run similar programs in the corporate world. So I wanted to say that because, you know, I do a lot of work with masculinity. I do a lot of work with disengaged boys. I do a lot of work with, with schools and communities and, co- and corporate organisations who want to address the impact of toxic masculinity to bring about more positive masculinity, but more importantly, bring about more equity um, uh, and, and belonging in those organisations and communities around which, you know, we can transcend the limiting beliefs of gender, for example, um, the limiting beliefs of race and ethnicity and really connecting with each other as humans um, to maximise our capability within those organisations and cultures and schools and communities. So that's why I get asked about things like uh, Andrew Tate because people are like, well, how do we solve the Andrew Tate problem? I'm like, well... You know, like um, the majority of men and boys I know are actually really good people. They're kind, they're, they're, they're empathetic, they're sensitive, they're caring, they're responsible. <clears throat> um, the majority of, of uh, and, and you know, um, we don't have things like Me Too or Andrew Tate or, or, or uh, you know, um, Jordan Peterson because the world is full of evil, rapey, bad men. What we have is is we have um, uh, like those evil, rapey, bad men are the extreme expression of a culture of we, that we create through normalising and giving permission to certain behaviours that then give permission to more extreme behaviours higher up. We have a concept of what it means to be a man that is is kind of um, that has been given to us. This idea of this this narrative or story of what it means to be a man has been given to us over time and we've somehow bought into that story, that narrative. We've been sold this narrative about what it means to be a man and it doesn't serve us anymore. Um, it affects mental health. It, it affects, uh, it affects uh, you know, violence against women, violence against other men. It affects um, substance use, suicidality, um, uh, anxiety, depression, um, and, and it affects our ability as men to seek help when we need it. And we're at a moment in history where that concept of masculinity is being challenged. I mean, the majority of men I know don't buy into the, the old school concept of what it means to be a man. But they also don't feel, a lot of men don't feel that they have a viable alternative that they can hold on to and that can give them purpose. They also don't feel that they can actually have robust, brave conversations about what it means to be a man in a safe environment where they don't feel judged or shamed um, or excluded themselves. And so what I know happens, again, in a, in a, in a space, and we, we touched on this before, when, our, when the status quo and when normalcy is challenged, we, we tend to leverage or double down on things that give us a sense of stability, and, and often that is a traditional worldview, a traditional concept of what it means to be a man. And that concept of what it be, means to be a man that is expounded by people like Jordan Peterson or, or Andrew Tate, um, that's a, not a narrative that they created, but it's a narrative that has purchase. It's a narrative that young people are, are like, well, I don't know what it means, but these guys know what it means. I don't feel comfortable uh, under, like uh, asserting what I think it means to be a man, but these guys do, and that's attractive. And so it creates an attractive, simple solution at a time when young people are incredibly confused, anxious, unstable about what it means to be a man and don't feel that they have the space to really unpack it. And so where does it come from? Why do these people exist? Again, it's complex. And I think part of it is that we that, that we don't have a space to really communicate and discuss this um, the complexity of this safely. I mean, we have a whole program called Men After Me Too, What's a Bloke Supposed to Do, where it's explicitly designed to get. It's not about a politically correct analysis. It's not about right or wrong. It's about, um, it's about having an empathetic approach, which allows us to take off our masks of what we think we're supposed to be and actually freely communicate 
what's going on for us with other people to acknowledge our privilege and bias, to connect with each other empathetically and just make a choice. And the majority of people that go through that, they make a choice that is compassionate, empathetic, humble, um, which is about, you know, what it means to be human. And it's not caught up on the rightness or the wrongness. It actually embraces the messiness of what it means to be human because from the work that we do, like the measure of success is not perfection. The measure of success is not getting right. Um, um, making a mistake doesn't mean that we're failures. It means that we're human. So it's not about getting it right. It's about supporting each other to be able to keep going to so that we can continue to learn from and grow from our experiences um, from our mistakes and our failures, um, not uh, 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 because that's what it means to be human. That's the power we have from being human, not getting it right, not being perfect, but being able to embrace our imperfections and our mistakes as a vehicle through which we can learn and grow together. And I think that the more opportunities we have for that, the more we can mitigate the risks of individuals who have economic and sort of social and political things to gain from providing simple solutions to people who are lost and who need support. I mean, I don't know if that answered your question again. Absolutely but, did. But I'm no, hoping that it added to it. I guess in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, like, and first of all, that was very touching on that stuff because I feel that way as well as a man in the society, you know, like I'm 28 years old. And there's still like confusion around what it actually means to be a man. And I don't say that to buy into the the thing you're saying. I'm saying that literally from my own personal experience. And, you know, when you see figures come along, like, you know, the Jordan Petersons, the Andrew Tates and people of that nature, and we can look in history and see there's people that have done similar things as well. It's, it's the same thing you said. It's like, it's it's so easy to attach onto that because the message is so confusing about what it, what it means to be uh, a male. You know, and I guess beyond that, like, did I hear the solution there being that creating spaces where people can discuss that and rather assigning a certain characteristic, like you need, you ought to be, uh, you know, muscly or to be this way or that way, rather we have conversations that allow people to find what that is for them. As a human being, because yeah, yeah. competition, strength is not just an inherently male quality. Seriously, dude, like watch, like watch a woman giving birth, just watch a woman. And you yeah. will see competition, you'll see strength, you'll see independence, you'll see assertiveness. Do you know what I mean? Like, and and yet I grew up not being incredibly, I'm not competitive. I'm not, I mean, I think I am assertive now, but it's taken me a long time to get there. And I haven't drawn that from the men in my life. I've drawn that from the women. I'm incredibly um, inspired by the strong, you should hang out with my family, the strong women in my life. So again, the attribution of maleness and femaleness in terms of characteristics. And again, we can go into DNA and biology here. You know, when we think about the differences between men and women, and the biology is pretty clear, men and male and female humans have been moving more towards, uh, moving towards less um, uh, sort of differences, um, uh, 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 sexual dimorphism even. You know, there's, there are fewer differences between men and women than there are similar. There are more similarities than there are differences. Even if you were to map the norms of men and women, you'd see there are more overlaps than there are outliers. And yet we focus on the outliers to define the, uh, the ideal characteristics of what it means to be men. In the same way that, that, that we focused on the outliers to define the ideal characteristics of what it meant to be an Arianic white male or a white person. We ignored all the connection points and the similarities. And I think that the connection points and the similarities offer us greater capability to deal with the real challenges of the world. Um, and so, you know, again, if we look at our DNA, our DNA has more similarities and differences, not just across humans, but across other species. Um, and and so maybe the 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 tendency to want to create differences is 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 unnatural um, if we were to use that kind of uh, that rhetoric or that that form of rationalization. Um, but I, I think you're right. Like that, that we can actually transcend the ideal constructions of what it means to be a man or a woman by challenging the relevance of them to us as as complex humans. And also looking at the historical and cultural evolution of those ideal types and thinking about who they serve. Um, you know, when I do this work in organizations, the biggest resistance we get is from people who don't want things to change because they're benefiting from an inequitable system. So that's a key indicator. And often there's only a few of them, but they have so much power that they can put a stop to things. So, you know, again, like thinking, but also acknowledging that, that, 
that people are not necessarily good or bad and that even the emergence of certain types of masculinity emerge out of a culture of which everybody plays a part. So you can't just rip off that mask and say, well, that's it, now you have to be something else because that will just reinforce existing traditional perspectives that give people a sense of comfort. People have to come to that of their own volition. And for me, what I've experienced, and that's men and women, because gender, male and female gendered norms construct and support each other, even though it's an inequitable relationship of power there, you know, the idea of being a man and being a woman is sat within a relational dynamic through which they support each other. And so, you know, uh, I think that the, the, the greatest opportunity that I've seen and I don't want to say it's a solution, but it's a real powerful thing that I've been been uh, uh, privileged to be a part of uh, uh, more recently is to watch people go into a space where they've had these ideas, where they've been able to question the relevance of those ideas, and to and to go and to hold on to the stuff that works and matters to them, and let go of the stuff that doesn't. And often that is not about what it means to be a good man or a good woman or a real man or a real woman. It's about what it means to be a good human. Um, and and that that can only come through conversation, dialogue, um, and those kinds of conversations and dialogues can only happen in a safe space where we're not afraid to really put stuff out on the table. We're not afraid to get it wrong. We're not afraid to, and, and where we acknowledge, you know, we use the the courageous conversations framework where you know stay engaged, speak your truth, listen for understanding, but also accept and ex- expect non closure, um, uh, and uh, and and experience discomfort. And if we can do that a little bit more, um, we can engage in these big, brave conversations, which is where the real change occurs. So I'm hearing that the, the theme there is having space for conversations. That's one remedy, I guess you could say. But what is, as an individual, can we do? I know that everything's interlinked and that we, you know, we're part of a larger picture. As an individual, what can one do? You know, what tools can one use when? those things arise when the next Andrew Tate inevitably comes or the next movement of XYZ comes, what's the framework we can look at the situation to be a bit more even killed, so to speak? Um, Don't panic. Don't take it personally. Don't be too hard on yourselves. I think they're the three rules that I hold on to. I think um, be aware of moral panic because often that constructs and and contributes to the kind of um, the, 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 the support and the establishment of these sorts of thinkers. I think um, create space for open dialogue. Like one of the things we do first of all is we shut down those conversations and we and we and we assume that you know like any talk of this sort of stuff means that we're bad or wrong, or we're going in the wrong direction. Um, uh, I think uh, um, the more we shut down the conversation, the more we attribute shame and blame to people who are interested, in these things, the more we reinforce their position their ali- and their alignment with it, the more we create that, that cognitive dissonance I was talking to you about before, the more we create this idea that they are somehow victims and that, and that these people with their simple solutions provide, you know, the answer to that victimhood um, and the more we feed it. Um, and so that requires intellectual humility. It requires, um, you know, a sense of inquiry, humble inquiry. Um, it inqu- requires psychological flexibility. Um, again, cultural humility is an important thing as well, but it requires that we connect with each other as humans, see the person, not the rhetoric or the idea. And this is what what social media has kind of supported, is it allows us in the same way, I don't want to say in the same way, because I don't want to make it like a, a parallel to the Holocaust, because that's not cool. But I've got to be careful because I'm now going to say, but in the same way, you can dehumanize a person and turn them into an idea or an ideal or a rhetoric or a, or a form of identity or a number. And we and when we cease to see the human, it justifies us doing some pretty shitty things to each other. And in the name of some kind of idealized sort of uh, sort of self-righteous thing that enables us to to support our own sense of self and our own worldview, which um which is often constructed in isolation of all the other perspectives in the world out there. And so it it involves us being able to learn from each other and grow with each other so that we're not pushing each other apart. That's what like a lot of conversations in the contemporary, and it's not just the contemporary world because it's happened in the past. 
But this is what a lot of stuff that happens on social media can actually contribute to, the dehumanization of that, those discourses and those rhetorics, the ability to actually push ourselves further apart, but also be um, immersed in these epistemic bubbles or echo chambers that, that, prov- that only give us available information that supports our worldview, those cognitive biases that we talked about before as well. So um, uh, stepping outside of our comfort zone is really important. Acknowledging our own prejudices and biases, even though we might be holding on to this sort of idea of, of, of rightness or wrongness, letting go of that and connecting with real human beings, acknowledging that each one of those human beings like us has a story that has formulated the mask that we wear. Um, and and the identity that we hold on to, and not trying to rip that apart from people, but try to understand it. You know, like like your your mechanism for understanding the world and biology. I'm interested in. I actually care about the story that's contributed to that, and I'd like to learn more. And I don't want to take that away from you because it's obviously emerged from from, from some experiences that serve you. And I'd I'd love to learn about that. Um, and I think that that's what the anthropological perspective has given me. And that's what the world can gain from being more anthropological. We can be a bit more humble, a bit more um, um, uh, uh, a bit more open, um, and a bit more willing to inquire um, uh, into the different condition and the different stories of the, all the humans around us. And do you think with the knowledge, and this is the question I was asking before with the the us versus them stuff, and I'm going to circle around back to it now, but do you think that if we acknowledge that there is the desire to have something to fight against, that we can choose consciously to fight against this, for example? Like when I say this, I mean specifically the idea that uh, like so coming together more. Like I want to fight against uh, separation. I want to fight against. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to jump in on there because I think it's, a, it's an issue of reframing. So like um, – Everything has a good and a bad, right? Everything, I mean, again, that's problematic for me because I think that's far too binary and simplistic, that there are positives and minuses to everything. There are costs and benefits to everything. Even when we think about, you know, physical evolution, you know, we've always gained something or we've had to let go of something. That's just the way things work, right? That's the nature of physics. Um, uh, uh, and, and like, I think I think of this, this I mean, the exclusion thing, as a function of our desire for inclusion. So if we think about it in a different way, you know, the 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 themness of that dialogue emerges out of a desire to belong to an usness. And so uh, for me, I think the opportunity, and this is where we touch in on some of those, where we circle back to some of those sort of philosophers you were talking about before. But I would include Western philosophers in amongst those Eastern philosophers, because I think you know, like the more I've learned about philosophy and humanity and, and the way people have tried to make sense of existence and being is that it's not, all the stuff we're talking about is not new. It's, it's actually really old. That's the beauty of it. We just keep revisiting it with different words and different language and different things, different symbols. And I think that at the heart of it is a desire to belong and a desire to be a part of something bigger, to transcend the self and be a part of something bigger. That's what gives us a sense of purpose. That's what gives us a sense of direction. And so it's about uh, expanding what we belong to. And this is why I say the ability to see the crossover, the touch points, the connection points, the similarities in our in the way that we understand what it means to be human, but not just what it means to be human, but what it means to be part of this broader ecosystem of the world and the universe within which we live. That gives us a sense of belonging that I think, and that I think you think as well, um, allows us to transcend the kind of um, the pettiness of skin color, gender, class, economics, nationality. Um, and even species. And I think these are important conversations to have as we as we think about how we are going to step into the next phase of our existence as not just humans, but species within a much larger ecosystem of which we've we have much more awareness of. as 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 you know, again, that's making the assumption we're talking from a Western scientific perspective, Western scientific capitalistic perspective that when we step into some more indigenous or, or, again, when we step into some other worldviews, this is not new. You know, the indigenous communities that I do a lot of work with, that's a big part of the way that they construct their worldview or their ideal, or their, their ideas of what it means to be human in the world or beings within the world. Um, and so, you know, um, it's less about 
the the exclusion or the themness. And it's more about, well, what does it mean when we say we belong to something? What do we really belong to? And and can we broaden that out and to to be more inclusive of diversity? Again, that's 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 uh, I've 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 explicitly benefited from that perspective through my um my my the privilege of my education in anthropology. And I think a really practical way to do that, from my experience in life, is loving kindness meditation. Um, that's what comes up for me, where you sit and you, 15 minutes, you <clears> go through, firstly, may I be happy, may I be at peace, may I be healthy. You think of someone outside you who you, you know, that you have a neutral relationship with, maybe an acquaintance, someone that you see every now and then. Then you think about someone that's done wrong by you and you think the same thing. May they be happy, may they be at peace, may they be healthy. And I really felt like when you were saying that, that that's the, because a part of my mind is like, what's, what is the actionable thing you can do, right? Which there's not always something actionable. And I acknowledge that, but I think it's really cool to share that because, yeah, that really helps you embrace the humanity of another person. Mm, and I love that for you. I love that you can take an explicit action out of that. And and I really would, uh, and I hope that there are as many people listening as there are different actions to take away from it. Um, and, and you know, I, 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 um, I tend to agree. For me, you know, I, I ask myself, myself similar questions. Um, I, and I try to focus on, you know, presence and patience and humility, um, and, and, and not being too hard on myself and really embracing the fact that, you know, that I'm not going to get it right. And that's okay. Perfection isn't the thing that really serves me. It actually, it has actually disabled me a lot in the past. And this idea of getting it right has, has disabled me in the past. And so, you know, again, in the context of presence and patience and 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 compassion and and um, authenticity and vulnerability, it's also humility and and openness um, <clears throat> and connection. You know, connection to to people and place. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, without making it too complex, um, uh, just a deep acknowledgement that that I'm never going to get it right and I'm never going to get to the end point, and that's okay. Um, that I'm really privileged to be able to even be on this journey and the opportunity to engage in conversations like this where we get to, you know, shoot the shit about what it means to be human. Like that's, to me, incredibly meaningful. And so, you know, I welcome any opportunity to do that more and more. To me too, it's very meaningful. And you've, you've uh, achieved your goal, which is to make uh, anthropology a household name. I want to learn more about it. <laughs> so where, where, where can myself and those listening uh, what's some books or some places we can start? Because I certainly want to have a look into it. Oh, there's so many. Um, I think, uh, well, please check out our website, uh, habitus.org, H-A-B-I-T-U-S.org. Um, and yeah, send us a message, uh, get in touch. I'd love to talk with you about how, you know, you can get more anthropology in your life. And there's some great books out there. Um, uh, there's, uh, some great work by Gillian Tett, who's an anthropologist who writes for the Financial Times. She did work on marriage rituals in Eastern Europe, um, but through her work uh, using an anthropological lens, she was able to almost uh, predict the global financial crisis. Um, wow. Uh, really powerful, right? Um, uh, um, she wrote a book called this, the, the, the Silo Effect and also, um, uh, um, oh, oh, uh, uh, Anthrovision. It's on my books there. You've also got, uh, I'm looking back at my books. You've also got. Um, how you can grab it if you like, if you want to. Yeah, can I grab them? I'll grab them. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah, cool. Ooh. I'll leave it at that. I'll keep it at this. These are good ones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Um, all right, so simple ones. So Tim Ingold, amazing person, a bit of an anthropo rock star. Met him, love him. Um, and this is slightly more academic. Really, really cool book. Um, uh, Sense making, interesting one, uh, written by Christian Marsberg. Uh, Christian Marsberg uh, applies anthropology, sociology, philosophy in a lot of corporate work um, wow. in order to, you know, come up with some great mechanisms to challenge the status quo. Come up with new innovative ways of working together as humans. Um, great one, Matthew and Gelke, uh, uh, how to think like an anthropologist again, perhaps a little, um, academic for some, <clears throat> um, 
really cool one, Gillian uh, Tett, uh, Anthrovision, um, how mm-hmm. anthropology can explain business and life. Again, uh, this is much more accessible as a book, really powerful book to read. And two of my favorites, right? Like, again, when you were like asking those questions about, you know, are, are humans good or bad? I did, sorry, that seemed a bit patronizing. I apologize. Um, but it, the reason why I say it like that is it's, it's a question I get asked all the time and I'm, I don't, I'm not satisfied with it as a question. And, and Augustine Fuentes starts with that question, uh, but looks at it from a look archaeological perspective through time and kind of gives us evidence about the, the great um, uh, cap- capacity of human to do both and that, that neither defines us, but both of those things come together to give us that creative spark to deal with problems, to, to, uh, to find meaning, to communicate meaning and to, and to thrive in the world that we live in. And this one's like one of my favorite books. It's um, <clears throat> it's sort of um, it's by Daniel Miller. It's called The Comfort of Things. It's it's sort of like a um, an ethnography. So ethnography is one of the things that anthropologists do. We rock up to a culture and we try to understand that culture and communicate what we've learned with other people who weren't there. In essence ethno culture graphy picture we try to paint a picture of a culture using a very a, a number of methods and one of the greatest methods is by just really immersing ourselves in that culture so that it's not just the intellectual stuff but the stuff that we learn through our bodies um uh, in fact the name of the organization habitus is really just the lived experience of culture through our bodies right and this book by Daniel Miller, he basically um, spends a year in in a typical English street and kind of immerses himself in the different households in those streets to communicate what it means to be a human in that world, in that place, through storytelling and through the way in which people interact with the objects in their homes. The first chapter is called Empty, the next, next, and it's about this house that has nothing in it. The next chapter is called Full, and it's about this house that's full of sort of Christmas ornaments and, and how their relationship to those things helps them make sense of their lives and their experiences and gives us a bit of a glimpse uh, uh, like into the windows of, of, of the lived experience of people in that place. I love it because it's so accessible. It's a beautiful read. It's a lovely set of stories, and it helps people understand how anthropology is not just something that can be used in a lofty tower of, of, of academia, but it can it's something that can be applied in our daily lives by connecting with our own stories and the stories of others and by deeply listening to those stories to understand um, the, 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 the diverse and complex people that play a part um, in the world that we live in. I got excited there. You did, and you made me excited as well. No, keep it out. That's great. Um, Because, you know, when it comes to academic conversations, people get very like, you know, well, this study, you show your passion, which makes me excited about it. And all those books there are going on my to-read list. As soon as I finish this book I'm reading now, I'm into it. Like I'm I'm, I'm invested. So Love it. And we've got got some links on some – uh, I've got a blog post on the website which has some links to articles that I've uh, blogs that I've written that give yep. an indication to some of the cool anthropologists out there that we can use. Um, uh, so yeah, please uh, check them out. Drop us a line. Keep in touch. And it's www.habitus.org. Yes, H-A-B-I-T-U-S dot org. Awesome. Well, Monty, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Luke. A real pleasure to you and uh, hopefully we get a chance to catch up again soon.